You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 187 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With the last show, we wrapped up our look at the Battle of South Mountain and started the transition to our discussion of the Battle of Antietam. The fighting for control of the South Mountain Passes took place on September 14, 1862, and then the Battle of Antietam will be on the 17th. So, when last we left Robert E. Lee, we said that although the Battle of South Mountain was a tactical defeat for the Confederates, it was actually, if you look at the big picture, a victory for Lee, since the fighting for the mountain passes would ultimately provide him with the thing he needed most, time, time to reunite his divided army. We talked about how in the aftermath of South Mountain, and with Harper's Ferry still holding out, Robert E. Lee had been fully prepared to give up on his campaign and retreat south, back across the Potomac River, in order to save his divided and vulnerable army. But then Lee had temporarily halted the retreat of D.H. Hill's and James Longstreet's troops at Sharpsburg in order to give Lafayette McClaw's command the chance to escape from Pleasant Valley, where it was trapped after the federal breakthrough at Crampton's Gap. As y'all recall, McClaw's command had been part of the Confederate force besieging Harper's Ferry, but they'd been cut off by the Union victory at South Mountain. After that, McClaw's was stuck in Pleasant Valley. He couldn't move forward because the Federals of William Franklin's Sixth Corps blocked his way, and he couldn't go back as long as Harper's Ferry was still holding out. Exactly. But Lee apparently thought McClaw's could still escape, so the Confederate commander halted at Sharpsburg to wait for McClaw's to join Hill and Longstreet there. Lee was still planning on withdrawing south of the Potomac, but first he was going to wait for McClaw's. But then on the morning of Monday, September 15th, Lee received a message from Stonewall Jackson saying the fall of Harper's Ferry was imminent. This incredibly important development changed Lee's thinking and gave him hope that something of his campaign might be salvaged after all. Because once the Federals at Harper's Ferry surrendered, then Stonewall Jackson could finally hurry north to rejoin Lee and Longstreet, and the Confederate Army would be reunited once again. And Lee had the chance to salvage something of his campaign, since he hadn't yet retreated back across the Potomac, but had stopped at Sharpsburg to wait for McClaws. 
By the way, with the fall of Harper's Ferry, McClaws would march his command back that direction and so escape the trap in Pleasant Valley that way. Right. But at any rate, as we said last time, Stonewall's news about Harper's Ferry changed everything for Lee on Monday the 15th. And so, rather than making just a temporary halt at Sharpsburg, Lee decided to make a defensive stand at that place and have Jackson march up from Harper's Ferry as quickly as possible and join D.H. Hill and Longstreet there. And that, in a nutshell, is how, on Wednesday, September 17, 1862, one of the biggest battles of the Civil War would come to be fought outside Sharpsburg, Maryland, in the woods and fields and hills along the banks of Antietam Creek. If Robert E. Lee's original plan for his campaign had unfolded without a hitch, there wouldn't have been a battle at Sharpsburg. In all likelihood, there would probably have been a big battle somewhere in south-central Pennsylvania, after Lee had marched north from Hagerstown, drawing McClellan after him. It's interesting to think that if Lee's campaign had gone as he'd planned, there might perhaps have been a battle at Gettysburg up in Pennsylvania in September 1862, rather than in July of 1863. But, as we all know, after Lee divided his army, his plan was derailed when the Federals at Harper's Ferry didn't cooperate with his timetable, and when George McClellan moved faster than Lee expected to throw the Union Army across South Mountain. And so, although Sharpsburg factored into Lee's original plans, really not at all, now, because things had changed so much, one of the biggest battles of the Civil War would be fought on the ground just to the north and east of the town along Antietam Creek. In his book, The Battle of Antietam, The Bloodiest Day, Ted Alexander writes that Antietam is a Delaware Indian word meaning swift-flowing water. The creek is one of the major tributaries of the Potomac River in the area. The creek's headwaters are located some 30 miles to the north, near the town of Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and then the Antietam empties into the Potomac about three miles south of Sharpsburg. The Antietam, just to the east of Sharpsburg, was neither very wide nor very deep, but it was just enough of both that an organized body of troops, in any strength and with artillery, would need to cross it at one of the four arched stone bridges that spanned the stream. There was one bridge to the south at the mouth of the creek, but it will play no role in the upcoming battle. The second bridge was on the Sharpsburg-Roarsville Road, known locally as the Rohrbach Bridge, but soon to be immortalized as the Burnside Bridge. The third, called the Middle Bridge, was located where the Boonesboro Turnpike crossed the creek, and then farthest to the north was the Upper Bridge near Samuel Price Gristmill. Stephen Sears, in his book, Landscape Turned Red, The Battle of Antietam, writes, quote, Before the armies came, Sharpsburg, Maryland, was a quiet place, an entirely ordinary little rural community where the roads came together. In September 1862, it was just a year short of being a century old, having been founded a dozen years before the Revolution, and named in honor of Maryland colonial governor Horatio Sharp. <laughs> 
Its main street was called Main Street, and there was the usual proportion of churches and taverns and stores, with the 1,300 residents living in plain frame houses scattered along side streets and lanes. Sears goes on to say that, quote, a good many of the local farmers were of sturdy German stock, with names like Rohrbach and Mama and Otto and Poffenberger, and they had made the land bloom. In neatly tended fields, the corn stood tall, the orchards were, orchards were heavy with fruit, and the haylofts in the big barns were full. Life in Sharpsburg might have continued on its pleasant, uneventful way, unremarked by history, like a thousand other little towns dotting the American landscape, except for that suddenly all-important fact that it was the place where the roads came together. Some three miles west of Sharpsburg, the Potomac makes, it, makes its way southward in a series of sweeping bends, while a mile east of the town, Antietam Creek meanders along its generally north-south course. Between the river and the creek, from Sharpsburg, a well-maintained turnpike led to the county seat of Hagerstown, 12 miles to the north. Another five miles farther north was the Mason-Dixon line, and beyond that was Pennsylvania. A second turnpike ran northeast through Keatesville to Boonesboro, and a junction there with the National Road. This turnpike was the route followed by both Federals and Confederates on September 15th after the Battle of South Mountain that took them to Sharpsburg. And then, from the town, secondary roads went east to Roarsville in Pleasant Valley and south along the Maryland side of the Potomac to Harper's Ferry. But before the war, traffic on the two turnpikes had funneled through Sharpsburg and crossed the Potomac into Virginia and the lower Shenandoah Valley at nearby Shepherdstown. But the bridge there had been burned in 1861, and now the only practicable Potomac crossing in the area, for an army, was Bottler's Ford, just below Shepherdstown. And so in mid-September 1862, the three-mile stretch of road between Sharpsburg and Bottler's Ford was the most important of all the area's highways, because it was Lee's lifeline back to Virginia, and, should the upcoming battle go against him, it was his only escape route. D.H. Hill's battered division of rebels began its retreat off South Mountain late on the evening of Sunday, September 14th. The head of the column tramped southwest on the Boonesboro-Sharpsburg Road. As we mentioned last time, Lee ordered a halt at Kittysville, but this turned out to be just a temporary pause in the Confederates' withdrawal to Sharpsburg. It was thought that after crossing Antietam Creek, some Federal cavalry might have to be pushed out of Sharpsburg on Monday morning. But when no Yankee horsemen were found to be around, Robert Rhodes positioned the men of his bloodied brigade on the high ground southwest of town, while Alfred Colquitt's brigade made their way through Sharpsburg to Bottler's Ford, presumably to guard the important Potomac crossing point. While Rhodes and Colquitt were marching down the main road from Boonesboro to Sharpsburg, Hill's remaining brigades used country lanes to withdraw from South Mountain and reach Boonesboro. Once they reached that place, they followed the same route to Sharpsburg. 
These were the brigades of Roswell Ripley and G.B. Anderson, and also the fallen Samuel Garland's brigade, now led by Duncan McRae. The men used the middle bridge to cross Antietam Creek on Monday morning and took up a position above the Boonesboro Pike, just north of Sharpsburg. Harvey Hill accompanied these three brigades on their march, and after they'd crossed Antietam Creek, he directed their placement. Here at Sharpsburg, after the Battle of South Mountain, Hill estimated that his division now numbered about 3,000 muskets. What he lacked in infantry, though, he made up in artillery, 26 of his own guns, and another 20 or so from the Army's artillery reserve. James Longstreet made the march to Sharpsburg with D.R. Jones' division. Although everyone was anxious to withdraw from South Mountain on Sunday night before the Yankees pressed their advantage in the morning, Longstreet's troops were forced to wait as the Army's trains followed D.H. Hill's column south. Once the quartermaster, ordnance, ambulance, and commissary wagons did reach Sharpsburg, they continued through the town and halted about halfway to the Potomac. But the Army's trains rolled only slowly southward, and it wasn't until very late on Sunday night that Longstreet was able to start withdrawing his troops from South Mountain. The soldiers of D.R. Jones' division went first, followed by the, by the men of John B. Hood's division. They all made their way to Boonesboro, then to Kittiesville, and on to Sharpsburg. According to the esteemed campaign historian Ezra Carman, the Confederate retreat from South Mountain, quote, was not effected without much disorder and some demoralization, and the number of stragglers was very large, particularly in Longstreet's command, which had made a severe march from Hagerstown, some of it very roughly handled by the enemy, and all of it much jaded, end quote. Once D.H. Hill's and Longstreet's men had all arrived at Sharpsburg on Monday, Robert E. Lee had perhaps 15,000 men with him there. Twenty-six of the Army's 40 brigades were still at Harper's Ferry, a hard day's march away by the most direct roads. Lee's troops were not only weak in numbers, but their physical strength had been compromised by weeks of campaigning. There had hardly been a pause after Second Manassas before Lee launched this new campaign, and so the rebel soldiers had already endured weeks of hard marching and a bad or inadequate diet. As was just mentioned, many of Longstreet's men were lost to straggling, and a substantial number of Stonewall Jackson's men would be lost the same way on their march up to Sharpsburg from Harper's Ferry. Thousands of Confederate soldiers were shoeless, their uniforms were in rags, and all were hungry. The recollections of Private W.B. Judkins of the 22nd Georgia reveal the degree to which hunger colored the average Confederate soldier's experience of the Maryland campaign. Judkins spends far more time writing about foraging and scrounging for food than about combat. On the march to Sharpsburg, he risked arrest to raid a farmyard. He climbed a stone fence and crammed his pockets in his mouth with grapes and some other fruit that was unknown to him. It turned out to be unripe gooseberries, which bit his tongue, quote, like eating needles. But then Private Judkins literally didn't have the strength to climb back over the fence. Although he was arrested for straggling, he managed to escape and rejoined his regiment. But most of Lee's men were in the same condition. They'd had nothing to eat for days beyond what they could forage or scrounge along the line of march, mostly uncooked corn 
or little unripe apples, and so diarrhea was rampant in the rebel ranks. Robert E. Lee must have certainly been aware, to some degree, of the weakened physical condition of his men, but still he had confidence in the ability of his men to beat just about any number of Yankees. Just a few days earlier, Lee had told Jefferson Davis the soldiers of his army were, quote, the best in the world. Lee knew the Army of Northern Virginia was a lean fighting machine. This was an army of combat veterans. The regiments were all battle-tested, and more than half had been in three or more major engagements. And Lee had complete confidence in his two chief lieutenants, Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet. At the same time, Lee had a certain cool contempt for his opponent's military competence. Lee didn't know at the time what had caused George McClellan to take the offensive so suddenly and storm the South Mountain Passes, but to Lee it seemed out of character for the Union commander. Up until that point, Lee's experience fighting against McClellan had led him to believe that Little Mac was the most timid of generals. Lee was willing to stop at Sharpsburg and make a stand with 15,000 men because he was almost certain that after South Mountain, McClellan would revert to form and become the most cautious of generals once more. And then about noon on Monday, the arrival of a second message from Stonewall Jackson confirming the fall of Harper's Ferry reinforced Lee's conviction to brazen it out against the pursuing Federals. Lee had the news of the fall of Harper's Ferry announced to the troops, and it provided a much-needed boost to morale. Most important, though, the surrender meant that Stonewall and a good part of his command ought to be up at Sharpsburg the next day, Tuesday. And so, unless McClellan called Lee's bluff and pressed him too hard in the meantime, Lee would remain at Sharpsburg. In Landscape Turned Red, Stephen Sears writes that, quote, To be sure, there was more to his decision to stand at Sharpsburg than simply a low opinion of the opposing general. Robert E. Lee was supremely confident of his own abilities and judgments. He found it intolerable to see his ambitious com- campaign end in retreat with only the capture of Harper's Ferry as compensation. Too much was at stake to accept such an outcome. Lee had marched north, primarily to fight and win a battle he believed would be decisive for the Confederacy. And if Sharpsburg did not promise the contest of thrust and maneuver he would have preferred, he would fight defensively instead. Indeed, for an army so weakened by illness and straggling, that might now be the better choice. What counted was the battle and the winning. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. At first light on Monday, September 15th, federal skirmishers on South Mountain at Turner's Gap and Fox's Gap cautiously advanced and discovered that the rebels had slipped away in the darkness. McClellan quickly issued orders for a pursuit of the retreating enemy. The 1st, 2nd, and 12th Corps were to use the National Road to march to Boonesboro, while the 9th Corps and George Sykes' division of the 5th Corps followed the old Sharpsburg Road, which descended from Fox's Gap. These routes took the troops past the positions held by the Confederates during the previous day's fighting. It was a rare experience for the Federal soldiers, that is, moving across the battlefield after a victorious fight, and many of the men recorded their impressions in their diaries and in letters home. Burial details were put to work, and in one of South Mountain's more infamous stories, one party of Union soldiers hit on the labor-saving scheme of throwing the bodies of dead rebels down Farmer Wise's well. Daniel Wise's well thus became the final resting place for 58 Confederate soldiers. One officer in a Pennsylvania regiment rationalized the action, writing of how, quote, War makes brutes of human beings. These dead soldiers were men like those bearing them, but no one stopped to think of that. Haste to cover them out of sight was the principal thing, and the well afforded a convenient receptacle, end quote. That morning, George McClellan remained at his headquarters east of the mountain, reading and writing dispatches. A report came in from Hooker that civilians in Boonesboro were saying, quote, The rebel army is in a perfect panic. They tell me that Lee said publicly last night that they must admit that they had been shockingly whipped, end quote. And one of McClellan's staff officers was out in the field, and he reported to headquarters that, quote, General Lee is wounded and Garland killed. Lee reports he lost 15,000 men yesterday. Boonesboro is full of rebel stragglers, end quote. An elated McClellan promptly telegraphed all this good news in full detail to Washington. He also took the time to send a wire to his wife, telling her, quote, Have just learned that the enemy are retreating in panic and that our victory is complete. Abraham Lincoln was at the War Department te- Telegraph Office following events closely. In response to McClellan's news, the president sent a message saying, quote, God bless you and all with you. Destroy the rebel army, if possible. Navy Secretary Gideon Wells also read Little Mac's telegrams reporting Lee's confession that he had lost 15,000 men and been shockingly whipped. 
In his diary, Wells remarked that the whole business sounded suspicious. While he didn't doubt that a victory had been won at South Mountain, Wells wrote, quote, I am afraid it is not as decisive as it should be. I shall rejoice if McClellan has actually overtaken the rebels, which is not altogether clear. McClellan, of course, knew nothing of Gideon Wells' skepticism. On the morning of September 15th, McClellan was basking in the glow of his victory. It's often overlooked that the battle at South Mountain was the first major offensive engagement that he had planned, initiated, and won with the Army of the Potomac. In his book, The Long Road to Antietam, How the Civil War Became a Revolution, Richard Slotkin writes that a telegram McClellan sent to retired General-in-Chief Winfield Scott the day after South Mountain is a window into Little Mac's new state of mind. Slotkin notes that Winfield Scott, the old warrior, had long been a figure of powerful but unresolved significance in McClellan's life going back to the Mexican War, when he and Robert E. Lee had been engineer officers on Scott's staff. It was widely known that back at the start of the Civil War in 1861, Scott had thought Lee was the man best qualified to lead the main Union field army, just as he had rated Lee the best and bravest of his officers in Mexico. When McClellan was called to Washington after First Bull Run, Winfield Scott was first his patron, then his critic, then the obstacle blocking Little Mac's path to control of military policy, and finally Scott was an enemy McClellan had driven from command by a systematic campaign of intrigue and defamation. In the immediate aftermath of South Mountain, McClellan took the time to send a message to Scott. He wanted Scott to know that he had routed and driven from the field a rebel army that had, quote, R.E. Lee in command, end quote. Obviously, the Battle of South Mountain had a personal significance for McClellan that to him was nearly as vital as its potential strategic consequences. Winfield Scott must see and acknowledge that he had been wrong to prefer Lee and wrong to doubt and oppose Little Mac. McClellan was almost also certainly thinking about how the victory at South Mountain would provide him with ammunition he could use against his radical Republican political enemies in Washington, those who had insultingly characterized him as a procrastinator, a coward, even a traitor. They had trumpeted their doubts about McClellan's ability to fight and win battles. But now his victory at South Mountain would armor him against their malice. Yes, on the morning of Monday, September 15th, George McClellan was feeling pretty good indeed. Like its commander, the Army of the Potomac was in high spirits the morning of September 15th. For the first time in its history, it had a victory that put the rebels to flight, and none of the Union soldiers were minding the hot and dusty marching very much that Monday morning. As they tramped along, they passed a good many captured Confederate stragglers being herded to the rear. A man in the new 130th Pennsylvania laughingly called out to one of these groups and asked if there were any more rebels left. A defiant Southerner fixed the greenhorn with a hard look and assured him that soon enough he would run into all the rebels he ever cared to see. Unlike Robert E. Lee's veteran army, 
about one-fourth of McClellan's army at Antietam would be made up of greenhorns, not just soldiers who had never been in a battle, but a large number of raw recruits. These included nine-month men, who were hastily enlisted to cover the shortages in manpower caused by the War Department's premature and overly optimistic closing of recruiting offices that summer. Eighteen of these brand-new regiments, about 15,000 men, became part of the army just prior to the march to Antietam. Another 5,000 new recruits were added to the ranks of existing regiments as replacements. The nine-month regiments, as well as the replacements, lacked training, and it could be expected that their ignorance of drill and firearms would prove fatal at the tactical level on a battlefield. It's important to note that McClellan's army here was not the same force that had served in the Peninsula Campaign, nor was it the Army of the Potomac that would go on to glory at Gettysburg and other battles. At Antietam, Little Mac did have the 2nd, 5th, and 6th Corps of his original Army of the Potomac. But three corps from John Pope's ill-fated Army of Virginia had been folded into McClellan's command. And while the 11th Corps was kept back to guard Washington, the 1st and 12th Corps marched to Antietam with Little Mac and will play key roles in the opening phases of the battle. Then there was the Ninth Corps, whose nucleus was comprised of Ambrose Burnside's expeditionary force that had seen action down on the North Carolina coast, and to Burnside's men had been added the Kanawha Division from Western Virginia. At any rate, all of that's to say that the Union Army that fought at the Battle of Antietam would be, in many ways, a patchwork force. Until midday on Monday, McClellan remained at his headquarters far to the rear, basking in the glory of his victory the previous day. After Little Mac finally left his headquarters, he rode west over the mountain and caught up with the vanguard of his advance two miles beyond the village of Keatysville. There, awaiting further orders, were the troops of Israel B. Richardson's division of the 2nd Corps and Sykes' regulars from Fitzjohn Porter's 5th Corps. They were deployed to the right and left of the turnpike running from Boonesboro to Sharpsburg. Behind them, Joseph Hooker's 1st Corps and the rest of Bull Sumner's 2nd Corps were halted, also awaiting orders. Ahead was Antietam Creek, and beyond the Creek Valley were the Confederates, no longer retreating, but instead arrayed in line of battle. It wasn't until 3 p.m. that McClellan, with his staff and generals, began what he described as a, quote, rapid examination of the Confederate position. When the large party of horsemen attracted the attention of some rebel artillery, the order was given to disperse, and Little Mac and his close friend, 5th Corps Commander Fitzjohn Porter, continued the reconnaissance alone. It's not known what they discussed as they surveyed Lee's line on the far side of Antietam Creek, but later in his official report, McClellan said only that, quote, I found that it was too late to attack that day. Nothing much in the way of hard marching had ever been demanded of most of the Army of the Potomac, and nothing much in that vein was demanded of it on September 15th. Sharpsburg is hardly eight miles from Turner's Gap. With perfect 2020 hindsight, 
it's abundantly clear that if McClellan would have acted aggressively that Monday afternoon and immediately thrown his men across the Antietam, Lee's force would have been routed. As we said, Lee at that moment had probably 15,000 men at Sharpsburg, while McClellan had well over twice that number immediately at hand. But George McClellan, to put it mildly, was never at his best when confronted with the unexpected. And here, on Monday afternoon, was something totally unexpected. By all logic, Little Mac should be seeing merely a rebel rearguard across the way, left behind by Lee to protect the main body of Confederate troops as it hurried to get across the Potomac. But instead, there was General Lee, defiant and in apparent strength on the far side of the Antietam. It was a surprising development, to be sure, the kind of thing that, to McClellan's mind, required careful further study. And so Little Mac decided, as he said, that it was too late to attack that day. Actually, in reality, McClellan had never planned on having to fight on the 15th. Truth be told, the day after his glorious victory at South Mountain, all Little Mac had expected to do was to see the panicked rebels off in their flight from northern soil. Yet there was General Lee on the far side of Antietam Creek, drawn up in line of battle. And so George McClellan decided that tomorrow, yes, yes, tomorrow, would be soon enough to deal with the unexpected, troublesome presence of this large enemy force drawn up over on the far side of the Antietam. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Maps of Antietam by Bradley M. Gottfried. This book is part of a series of detailed Civil War military atlases that the publisher, Savas Beatty, has put out, and we're big fans of these books. We've already recommended the one for First Bull Run, and now, really, we can't recommend this one highly enough. It covers it all, South Mountain, the capture of Harper's Ferry, and Antietam, in 124 full-color maps, and opposite each map is a full page of commentary. We consider it an indispensable resource as you sit down to study what all happened during Lee's Maryland campaign. But wait, there's more. Because with this episode, we also want to recommend that you pick up the map of the Antietam Battlefield from the McElfresh Map Company. Yep, uh, if you've ever visited a Civil War battlefield in the visitor center in the gift shop, you may have seen these McElfresh maps of different Civil War battlefields. We have several of them, and they're lovely um, artistic representations, I guess, of each battlefield. In this case, Antietam. Anyway, we think it's well worth picking up, so it's our bonus recommendation for this episode. So there you go. Don't forget you can find all of our book and map recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. 
Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we'll continue to set the stage for the Battle of Antietam. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.